Well, good afternoon, people of God. How are you guys? Good, good. Uh, well, hey, I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm so glad that you got to hear from Pastor Logan last week. He's, like he said, he's my pastor, but he's also my hero. And we're going to continue on with what he said last week, which we were in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to continue on that theme. And so this week, we're going to learn about a man who is a man of faith named John the Baptist. And so if you can, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke 3 for me. But while you get there, I'd love to tell you a little bit about things that I dislike, I strongly dislike. I'm not going to use the word hate. Uh, And I don't strongly dislike many things, but if there was something right at the top, it's robocalls or scam-likely calls that you get. Does anyone get those? Anyone get those? I get called twice a day for my car warranty. I don't even have a car. They're not even targeting me correctly. So I, I loathe them, but I, I think they are really God's humor of getting back to me because as a kid, I was a serial prank caller. I was really into prank calling. I grew up with several older brothers, and, and that was really how we bonded, was through prank calling. We prank call each other, we prank call our friends, and it was great. Um, and we, we just got really too used to it because we would do it any time of the day. No, no day or time was safe. And I have two older brothers that would push it to the limit. I have a brother named Johnny and a brother named David. So one day at the house, it's a Saturday morning, we get a phone call, Johnny's there, he picks up. And it's David prank calling him. And David says, hey, this is Officer Green at the police department. We got your son here, or your brother David, uh, for toilet paper in a house last night. We need you to come pick him up. And Johnny, you know, he knows it right away. He goes, David, if you call back here one more time, I'm gonna mess you up. I'm paraphrasing what he actually said. Slams the phone, call comes back again. Hey, this is seriously Officer Green. You know, you want to come pick up David. He's sitting here. It'd be great if someone could pick him up. And he yells him one more time, I'm going to kill you when you get home, slams the phone. Well, sure enough, it really was Officer Green, and David really did get in trouble for toilet paper. And David sat there for a really long time because no one took it seriously. And, and that tends to happen, right? There are certain messages that you and I are bombarded with every single day that we hear them so often that if they were real, we probably wouldn't notice right, that you owe so-and-so $10,000, or your password's been leaked somewhere. We hear them so regularly that these messages, if they were real, it would be hard for us to know. And we see that in this message today, that John the Baptist has a message about the future and about our relationship with God that maybe you are used to, and you hear it all the time, so that when it is real, you may not notice it. And I want to spend time noticing what John the Baptist says. And I think John the Baptist really has two ways for us to see how our faith can go in action. And then we're going to finish our message by looking at the start of the ministry of Jesus. So if you're with me, be in Luke 3. We're going to start in verse 3. And he, this is John the Baptist, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Jump down with me to verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. So on the scene here, we're introduced to the character John the Baptist, and he is a unique character. The Bible wants you to know that he is an important character, and they do that by pairing Jesus' birth with John the Baptist's birth. And John the Baptist starts his ministry at the same time that Jesus does. But in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark also wants you to know that, Luke, or that John the Baptist is a weird guy because they say that he wears camel hair and that he eats wild honey and wild locusts. And Mark is trying to tell you that is not normal. Wasn't ever normal then and it's still not normal now. And so they're saying there is something interesting about this character, but even more interesting is the ministry that John the Baptist possesses. And his ministry is to prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist had been prophesied about that someone would come to let people know the Messiah was coming. And this is what John the Baptist does. And what we notice about John the Baptist is that his ministry actually isn't that long. We're going to see actually in just a few verses that his ministry will, will pretty much end in this chapter. But yet the Bible wants you to see what he's doing. So the first thing that he does in verse 3, if you'll notice, is he says a message of getting prepared. He says, get prepared. I want you all to have a baptism of repentance. Now, a quick note um, when you and I think of baptism, it's probably different from what John is doing. Remember, they haven't had Jesus come and die and resurrect yet. So their baptism was really this kind of ancient way to prepare your body to say, I want to get cleaned for when the Messiah comes. So it's a little different, but John is saying, hey, you need to get your head straight. Start to think about if this Messiah is coming, how are you going to prepare? And then he starts to quote the prophet Isaiah. And if you will remember, um, God has largely been silent with his people for hundreds of years. That's why Jesus' birth story is a very significant moment in time, that God has been largely silent. And so when John quotes the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, do you remember what it was like when God used to speak to us, when we had prophets, and God would tell us if we were in good standing with him or if we weren't? Do you remember what it was like when we would hear the words of God? He says, well, that moment is coming again. The Messiah is here. That moment is now. So you need to get ready. So they have this baptism. And then what happens is, as we saw in verses 10, 12, and 14, every single group that gets baptized, they go to John the Baptist and they say, John, what should we do? Now that we've been baptized, what should we do? And I want you to take note of this, that the first part of John's ministry was to show people that faith is public that the people came and said, hey, now that we've been inwardly clean, that we've got this baptism, we're getting ready, how should we show it externally? How can our faith be something that not only affects us inwardly, but also outwardly? That John, his very first part of his ministry is getting people to see that following Jesus entails you living differently. That faith cannot just be this internal thing that you have your feelings, you feel good about it, you want to keep it in here. It has to permeate every aspect of your life. That faith must be public. And this is indicative really of the whole New Testament. That our faith cannot only be internal, it has to be external. Um, now, I, I used to live in the Silicon Valley, um, kind of the San Francisco area. And the Silicon Valley is a very unique place where um, being a Christian is not, it's not great. I know that it's not great in New York City, but it's just, it's extra not great in the Silicon Valley. It's really looked down upon. 
And I think this show, Silicon Valley, as a show about it, kind of had this one episode that really encapsulated what it was like to be a Christian in the Silicon Valley. There's this character named Richard, and he's introducing a new CEO to the rest of the tech people in the room. And he says, this is our new CEO, Didi. And everyone's like, oh, hey, Didi. And he goes, this is all of his, all the things that he's done in Silicon Valley. And everyone's really impressed, and they are really excited. Then he goes, oh, and Didi is a Christian. And the whole room is just like, wait, what'd you say? And then he goes, and Didi goes to Bible study, like the whole deal. And everyone gets really weird. And then after, Didi goes to Richard, and he says, hey, why did you say that? You just told a room full of tech people, I'm a Christian. And Richard goes, well, you are, aren't you? He goes, yes, but I told you that in confidence. I'm not openly Christian. Thanks a lot, man. You just outed me. And that's probably how some of you feel, right? I, I definitely feel that, right? There are, there are aspects that, if I'm honest, there are certain rooms, places, and people that I would refer my faith not to be public, that I don't want to have that conversation. I don't want someone to say, the worst one is when they ask what I do. I'm like, do you, re- you really want to know it? Okay, here I go. Because I don't want the label, right? I don't want to be, oh, so you're a bigot. Oh, so you believe so-and-so. I don't want to have the conversation. But John shows us that the very first act that he wanted people to see is that your inward faith must go outward. That there should not be a part of your life that your faith remains hidden. That there should be no surprises from people of who you follow and who you worship. When I was in college, I lived in a dorm my first year, and I was convinced that I was going to reach people for Christ by being cool. This is a real strategy. It did not work because I was not cool. First, first step. But I said, I'm going to be the cool Christian. And when people are like, why are you so cool? I'll say, it's because I'm, you know, I, I love Jesus. And they're going to fall on their face and worship Jesus. And I'm going to be the greatest revival since Billy Graham. That did not happen. So at the end of my first semester, I was wrapping up and I was talking to this woman on the floor and I knew her pretty well. And we are my church men in the evening, like this church, and I was getting ready to head to church and she goes, hey, where are you going? And I was like, oh my gosh, this is my moment. I've been waiting for this all semester. And I said, I'm headed to church. And she goes, oh my gosh, you? I would have never guessed. And it just hit me. I was like, man, I... I am actually reaching no one, right? That I'm actually being the one influenced. I'm not influencing anybody. That our faith must extend to the areas we would least like it to. That our faith is a public faith and it cannot be boxed in. That's what John would tell us. Let's continue on in verse 15 of Luke 3. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threat the fleshing for and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by, by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Um, so we'll do a little bit of review here. But in verse 15, 
the people that John has been baptizing and talking to, they start to think that John might be the Christ that he's been talking about. And remember, John's whole ministry is to prepare the way for Jesus. His whole goal is to get out of the way. And so when they say, hey, are, are, you, are you the Christ? He, he could take advantage of it, but he chooses not to. He could manipulate them and use them for his own gain, but he says, you think my baptism is good? You think what I have to say is good? You should wait until the Messiah comes. You should see his baptism. You should hear what he has to say, not me. I am not worthy to untie his shoes, which was the lowest of the lowest slave position was to remove someone's shoes. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Wait till you meet the man. And it says in verse 16 that he continues on, or verse 18, he continues on to preach the gospel. And then verse 19, Herod puts him in prison. And that's really in the gospel of Luke, you know, he makes one more appearance, but that's really the end of his ministry. Like, that's it. And we know from other gospels that he will be beheaded and his, his life ends in prison. And what I want you to notice is how John the Baptist did what he was supposed to do how he got out of the way. A lot of commentators believe that John the, ba John the Baptist, his choice of willfully going, willingly going to prison was really his last move of making room for Christ, of getting out of the way. And later on in Matthew 11, John the Baptist is in prison and he's sitting there night after night after night after night and he starts to hear murmurs of what Jesus Christ is doing. And so he sends a messenger, and the, and the messenger essentially says, hey, Jesus, did I get it right? You know, I baptized you. Were, were you really the Christ? Did I, did I do the right thing? And Jesus says, go tell them what you see. Go tell them all the people that are being healed. Go tell them all that I am doing and all that I am fulfilling. In a sense, Jesus says, go tell John the Baptist, well done, faithful servant because you prepared the way for all of this. And what I want you to notice is John the Baptist's humility. You know, he could have said, when Herod locked him up, he could have told his large followers, make a fuss. Go make it so hard for Herod to put me in prison. He could have took advantage of, you think I'm the Messiah? Okay, give me some of your money. He doesn't do any of that. He withdraws himself. He makes way for Christ. And so this is my second point. I want you to see that faith is humble, that we have a humble faith that in all aspects always makes way for Christ and not us. Uh, I grew up in a, a artistic household. My mom was a professional artist for many years and she had a lot of boys that were not into art and it was really sad, but she tried to get us to be into art. We all played football instead. And she would show us Jackson Pollock and Judy Chicago and Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera and all these paintings. And when she would try to get us excited, but they never really, st it didn't stick, right? But then in high school, I saw one painting um, by Matthias Grunewald that utterly changed my life. And I don't say that lightly. I don't, most things don't change my life. But I saw this painting and it was a before and after moment for me. And I would like to share with you, and I'd like to actually take our time and, and work through it. And I want to show you just aspects of it. Um, hopefully all of you can see that. But so this um, painting is called The Crucifixion. And 
it is such a beautiful piece of work because I want to just walk through the characters. First, you have Jesus. And up until this, really, in art history, people painted Jesus as this meek, mild personality that never experienced pain or suffering, and he was always content. And Grunewald throws that out the window, and he paints him with the most visible expression of death. I mean, it's just gruesome. His body is mangled. There, there is no life left. And then if you look to your left, you see Mary Magdalene, very in line with her biblical character, worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And then you have Mary, the mother, who is just in, she's just distraught because her son has died. And you have John the Apostle, who's different from John the Baptist, who's holding her. can only imagine he's saying, it's going to be okay. He promised us greater things. And then you have John the Baptist. And you can see it's him because he's got the big beard and it's, he stands out like Mark says he does. But Grunewald in this painting was able to encapsulate all that John the Baptist did, his whole ministry in one expression, which is this, pointing to Jesus. What John never did was this. Look at me. Look at all the things that I can do. I, I made his whole ministry possible. I prepared the way. Not once. He turns his finger and he points to Christ. Church family, that is, our, that is our posture. That is what faith is. Faith is an expression of continuously in everything that we do, pointing to Jesus. On our best day, on our worst day, we point to Jesus. When we get hired, when we get fired, when someone we love dies, when someone we love is born, we point to Jesus. When depression hits, when life is up and to the right, when we're young, when we're old, when we win, when we lose, we point to Jesus. Our whole life expression is pointed to the cross, looking at the man who does the only thing that only he could do, which is save us. Our life cannot be in a posture of this. Our finger must be pointed at Christ in all that we do. Right behind John in the red letters in Latin, it says, he must increase and I must decrease, which is John 3 and what John the Baptist said. That is who we are supposed to be. That is a visible expression of how we ought to live. How you talk, how you carry yourself, the way you are around your family, your spouse, your loved ones. You point to Christ in all that you do and all that you don't do. Let's go through one more point. We're going to go through um, a little bit of a transition here, but this is um, when Jesus starts his ministry. Um, and so read with me in Luke 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So here Jesus starts his ministry. And I want you to notice a few things. We have the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and then we have the Father and the sky is open. And remember, God has not spoken for hundreds of years, and all of a sudden, God's voice appears. And you have Jesus, and the whole Trinity is there. And Jesus starts his ministry. What an entrance. And then the father says to Jesus something 
that will utterly change your life. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the reason that that can change your life is for what theologians call the great exchange. That we believe Christ came down and took our position, that of a human, died the death we should have died as a sinner. He took our position. And if we put our faith in Christ, we get his position. And what is his position? It's this right here. With a father looking down and saying, my son, my daughter, with you, I am well pleased. It's how the great church father Irenaeus put it like this. Jesus Christ became as we are, that we might become as he is. Paul the apostle put it this way. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. In a sense, Paul's saying, when the father looks down and sees you, he sees Jesus. And praise God that he does. Tim Keller puts it this way. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believed. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hoped. Now that can be a shocking reality to live out as a Christian. To really believe you are loved in spite of everything, like everything that you do. What about when I say that thing to my spouse that I shouldn't have said? He's well pleased. What about when I cheat on my taxes? He's well pleased. What about when I continue in that same sin that I just can't shake? He's well pleased. Yeah, what about well pleased? That is the gospel that you don't deserve it, but you get it anyways. Um, Rankin Wilborn, he tells this story. He's a pastor in LA near Disneyland. He tells a story about this woman that goes to his church and she grew up in a household where you had to earn it to be loved. And she always felt like she never measured up enough to receive her family's affection. But her job, surprisingly, um, she worked at Disneyland and she was Mickey Mouse. She like wore the costume. And she says, you know, it was so interesting. In my real life, I could not get people's affection. And then I put on this costume and these kids would come running to me. And these adults want to take pictures with me. And these kids wanted hugs. And they just wanted, they, they were so excited to see me that I was hidden in this costume, but yet loved. And that's what it's like to be in Christ. Hidden, yet completely loved. Fully known and fully loved. You know, and I think about what the father says to the son. And I went back and forth this week on on talking about this point or not, but I think it matters, which is we're growing up in a day and age in what psychology today calls the fatherless generation. And the statistics are just unbelievable that so many of us here in this room don't know what it's like to receive affection from a father. And if that's you, I want you to say, hey, we, we understand, we get it. You know, my, f- my favorite part of a wedding is when the bride's father speaks because there's just something about a father's love. And that's what you have if you're in Christ. 
you have the Father looking down at you saying, you are the apple of my eye, and with you I am well pleased. I'd implore you to take the message of the psalm, which is in Psalm 27. It says, though my mother and father may forsake me, the Lord gladly takes me in. And that's good news. I'd love to close um, with just addressing kind of three groups in the room. A major theme in this text is, is baptism, and I think it would be negligent to not at least talk about baptism. Now, there are probably many of you in the room um, that either have a relationship with Jesus um, and it's thriving or you're, you're a brand new believer and, and maybe you just have not been baptized. You haven't gotten to it. Life gets in the way. There's things you got to do and, you know, or you're nervous to do it in front of people. There are a myriad of reasons and, and I get it. Sometimes life is crazy. But I would implore you to take, take the call of John the Baptist. Make your faith public. That, that really baptism is really the first step for you to say, my faith, what is happening inwardly, needs to be talked about outwardly. That I want to make a public declaration that my faith is here and it's here to stay. I'd implore you to do that if that were you. The second group is people in here that they've been with Jesus, you've been baptized, you're chilling, all the things. I'd implore you to remember your baptism. What was that day like? What were the commitments that you made? The things that you said you were going to do for the Lord? Think about, reflect all that he has done for you and remember your baptism. And lastly, there's a group in here that maybe you're not in a relationship with the Lord, but you're at least curious because you're here. And I would say, take John the Baptist's message. Prepare the way. The king is here. He's arrived. And take the message, because the message is not fake this time. It is real. And the Father so badly wants you to hear the message, my son and my daughter, in you I am well pleased. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are real. And that you send us people like John the Baptist who tell us what we can do to prepare our hearts for you, to take steps of action, to make our faith public. God, we're so grateful that you gave us your son who sacrificed himself so that we could be hidden in you. God, as we're about to um, take communion, God, I pray that we would be reminded of what a miracle our salvation is. It's in the name that we pray. Amen.